Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Very excited to have today's guest back, uh, Ben Lee. People know Ben Lee, of course. Uh, he's an Australian musician who's been based in the US for quite a long time now, although he's got some news around that that he's going to talk to us about in this episode. And of course, you can't have turned on the TV in the last few months without hearing Ben's We're All In This Together all over the place. And we have a great chat about what it's like to be thrust into the middle of a global pandemic through an old song of yours being rediscovered for the time. So anyway, it's a brilliant chat. Ben was actually the sixth ever guest on Willosophy back in the day, almost six years ago now when I first spoke to Ben. So it was amazing to have this catch-up episode with him to speak about what he's been up to, but uh, most specifically about the passionate campaign he's waging against the influence of QAnon in the wellness community. So a lot of the conversation is about that, about uh, the state of American politics and where he sees himself in the middle of that world as an artist. So uh, follow Ben Lee Lee on his socials. And uh, oh, yes, I should mention that this is a catch up episode. So as I mentioned, Ben was on the podcast uh, six years ago, and this is a catch up episode. The catch up episodes normally come out on a Thursday for Patreon subscribers and on a Friday for everybody else. But uh, we just had a scheduling mix up this week. We had an episode with a brand new guest that was going to come out today. And then uh, that brand new guest uh, single that they were going to promote has been delayed. So we're just going to sit on that episode for a few more weeks. So instead, you're going to get to listen to this catch up episode with Ben Lee. I think it's an absolute corker. If you want to hear regular catch up episodes, well, we're on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy, trying to get as close as we possibly can. Well, we're trying to get to 5,000. We're pretty close. Uh, If we can get to 5,000 in contributions per month, we can afford to put the podcast out twice per week, a brand new episode on a Monday and a catch up episode on a Friday or of course, Sunday and Thursday for Patreon subscribers who get them one day early and ad free. That is one of the bonuses for joining up on the Patreon. I will also try to respond to every message that I get, but uh, I should point out that I can't always respond to um, a series of message just because a series of messages just because uh, there is you know really lovely amount of people who are messaging me on the patreon page and it does take up a little bit of the day each day to try to respond to people uh, in length and detail um, so I do try to respond to everybody who sends me a message but sometimes I can't uh, continue to respond if uh, messages are going back and forth so I'm sorry about that I do apologize but the truth is if I you know, responded to every single one of those, then I wouldn't have time to make the podcast and, you know, do the other things that I need to do in my life. And my life is a little busier uh, than it has been for the past few months because, of course, my television show, Gruen, is back on the ABC October 14. No audience, Russell in a different studio, brand new year as we go into our 12th season of Gruen. It's going to be an incredibly interesting season, not just the physical differences in actually making the show. We've never done the show before without it being in front of a live audience. Something I talked about a lot on the episode that came out a few days ago with Charlie Pickering. We talked about the idea of making entertainment in this new age and in a socially distanced age. And I picked Charlie's brains a lot. So if you've not heard that episode yet, I thought it was a really fascinating insight into you know, the changed environment and, you know, how not having an audience there, how making the show in a brand new way can often, you know, result in incredibly 
innovative and interesting problem solving. And that's what I'm looking forward to over the next three or four months of doing Gruen is there's going to be some problems and we're going to have to come up with innovative and interesting solutions to those problems. But of course, the world has changed, which means that advertising has also changed and we have so many cool things to talk about for this season. So October 14 on the ABC or of course on ABC iView. And if you are international, I'd recommend getting a VPN and then you could set it to Australia and then you could watch Gruen on ABC iView. So if you're one of our international listeners and you're asking me how you can see the show, that's how you can see the show. Uh, Patreon.com slash philosophy. Thanks to everybody who's signed up there as we go towards 5,000. And of course, you can also access my other podcasts at tofop.com. There is Tofop, the show that Charlie and I have been doing for over a decade now. There is Fofop, the spinoff of that show that is almost weekly. (laughs) We're getting towards it being weekly. Uh, There is, of course, a Two Guys, One Cup, our AFL adjacent podcast, which, look, we're talking a little bit more about football as it comes up to the football finals. But, you know, the majority of the podcast is still pretty much non-football related if you're a person who enjoys hearing us talk but does not enjoy hearing about football so uh they are the shows you can find them all at tofop.com as well as all james fosdyke's amazing art that he does for these episodes and a big shout out of course to podcast mike without whom we could not get these episodes out uh twice a week as a few have been coming out over the last few weeks so um that's about it i hope you're doing okay and i really hope you enjoyed this episode with ben lee Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, here's what we're doing in Philosophy land these days. On Mondays or Sundays for Patreon Patreon subscribers, we have a brand new episode with a brand new Philosophy guest. And then on Fridays or Thursdays for Patreon subscribers, we have a catch-up episode with a previous Philosophy guest where we dip back into their world and see what has happened since we last spoke to them. Uh, well, this guest was one of the original philosophy guests, uh, definitely in the first 10 episodes I ever recorded. So it is a very long time since we sat down in front of microphones and had a chat. This is how the podcast starts traditionally. So I will now start it and say this. Uh, who are you? Hi, I'm Ben Lee. <laughs> is, do Hello, I have to get ben into Lee. more detail or is that good? Is it? Uh, you don't have to. Look, I mean... Okay, okay. Re- oh, what, like, it's more a philosophical question. Yeah, who are you? I mean, I, look, to be honest, I, I but regular okay. listeners to the show know this, Ben. Basically, what I tend to do more than anything is... Sorry, I've listened to them, but not for a while. I'm not up to date with all the, uh, the, the format. <laughs> you, don't need, you don't need to listen, man. It's not compulsory <laughs> to have listened to the podcast, to do the podcast. It's okay. Um, what I will say is that I often, people know just listen to whatever someone says about themselves in the who I am Mm. and then I just talk about that for the entire podcast rather than doing any independent research. So no pressure, no pressure. (laughs) I've got to really... I I don't need an entire roadmap, but let's just say, if I was going to ask you, philosophically, Ben Lee, who are you? How do you describe yourself to the world? If you're going to put those words out to somebody and describe who it is that you are, who are Mm. you? Well, by... Trade. I'm a musician. I'm a, a singer-songwriter. Um, so I identify as being an artist and a creative person. But more than that, I sort of have always viewed my whole life kind of as 
a bit of an artwork or a song. So I sort of saw the way that I engaged with every decision in my life as part of my creativity. So in some ways, I think simply like my true art is like just going for it in life um, with whatever I'm doing. So I love this. I think this is absolutely something that I'm so pleased to hear you say, because it is also my external observation of you that I've often found that, you know, Ben Lee, the musician, Ben Lee, the, you know, philosopher, Ben Lee, the thinker, Ben Lee, the uh, artist of any description has been a work of art since you were a kid. Like, I mean, you seem to have this idea from when you were very young that you were going to create your own world and your own life. Take us back to where that instinct to, I'm not going to grow up into a world that has been created for me and be pushed into the regular pathways that society pushes us into and follow those things. I am as a child or, you know, pretty much as a child going to create my own world and my own existence. Well, I love that question. You, I love I love listening to you talk. We, me and Ione were just reminiscing about seeing you do a set at the Mint years ago. And um, just you're just so great. Anyway, um, it's, it's a work of art when you talk. But, but I wanted to clarify that when I say work of art, I don't mean that in a pretentious way. Like, it's like, you know, Michelangelo's, you know, ceiling or something, Sistine Chapel. I, I mean, it's an act of creation, which is what you were saying, a work in progress. Um, but I... I have funny memories of problem solving in my life um, from like kindergarten age. So I was probably four or five years old. I remember climbing a structure. There was some sort of jungle gym and there were two girls who were in my class climbing after me and they were debating who would get to marry me. Um, and I was, but it wasn't like, it didn't, at that age, I didn't yet identify this as an egotistical thing. It's like, oh man, look at all the chicks after me. I was just listening to them and they had this, you know, this is this problem. They were trying to figure out who was going to get to marry this boy in their class. And I just turned around and I said, well, why don't I marry both of you? And they just looked at each other like, yeah, that'll work. And, um, so I guess what I'm saying is like, uh, that would be seen as, um, an act, a creative decision or creative, like a solution that's kind of like outside the church. You know what I mean? Even for a kindergartner, I was willing to entertain an unconventional path if it would solve the current problem that I was in, that I was facing at the time. And all of my choices and my creativity in my life has been kind of like simply problem solving. Um, over one thing or another. And sometimes you have to create something unusual to solve a problem. Could an unconventional path solve a problem seems like an incredible insight for the world that we find ourselves in, right? Mm. Because I have a suspicion that, I mean, obviously we're in a we're in a world-changing crisis at the moment that will have ramifications for generations to come. It will not be the only thing that's going to have ramifications for the future generations, but it's certainly, we're going to feel the footprint of what we're going through right now in so many ways that we can't even imagine right now. The immediate ways that we can kind of identify and that we're having a series of debates over at the moment, but the future ramifications of the actions we take right now seem super, super important. And it, it occurs to me that if we rely on going back to normal, 
what our previous solutions to these problems were before we found ourselves in the situation we're in, that we are going to find ourselves in an even worse situation than we were in before than that we are in right now. So talk to me about the idea in a context of let's fast forward right to now yeah. and talk to me about that idea of unconventional thinking solving problems. Well, it's weird because I see both sides of it. Um, you know, I loved Bernie. Oh, for people who don't know, I live in the US, right? So I've lived in, I'm in LA right now. I've lived here for... Um, and everything's 20, fine, right? Yeah, everything's great. As far it's as great. we can tell, everything great. is great. It's the, it's the, it's the party. It's the way you want to be at. They're, they're having to keep people out. It's so hurt. Um, uh, yeah, um, anyway, um, so um, I live here and I liked a more progressive, initially, a more um, radical, revolutionary um, platform I thought that is what America needed, right? Um, to me, so I liked Bernie. I like AOC. Like I like a more progressive. It's just how who I am. I don't say that with any, like sort of like condescension to anyone else. I just they're the they, it resonates with me. I kind of have that energy creatively of like yeah, let's try again something totally different, right? Which is what you're saying. But I also recognize as an artist who has had a whole career of trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between my creativity and an audience's expectation when they come for a night to the show or buy a record. I mean, you have it too. It's like you're on stage and you, you can't always, you can't always go in leaps and bounds. You have to take your audience with you where you're going. Right? So I think there has to be, there has to be vision and there has to be visionary quality on all of our parts individually. I mean, you know, um, we're going to come back and spend time in Australia. Like, so we're coming back in December and it was a really big decision. We've if never, we, if we let you in. No, yeah, well, we we're, we're looking good. In. We're looking good with that. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, got to do the two weeks, you know, quarantine and everything. But, um, but that was a decision that I wouldn't have made. I, it was hard to picture that a year ago. We're very settled in here. You know, um, my wife's family are here. We, both our kids have been brought up here. Um, yet this moment requires an individual revolution on all our parts because we haven't been in these situations before. So it used to be like you'd meet someone who'd be like, oh, I don't quite know what I'm doing with my life. And for me, I can say there was a very slight kind of smug um, feeling of like, oh, isn't that sweet for those? But like, I know what I'm doing. Everyone, you know what I mean? Like if you're a driven person like me, it was a bit hard to relate to people that, were floating and didn't know what was going to happen with their lives in any way, didn't have dreams or ambitions, or, or, or felt that the plan wasn't in their control. Whereas now everyone's like that. There's not one person I meet with a degree of certainty about anything. And so it's a very interesting time. So in that way, we all have to be creative, but and we have to be revolutionary. We have to come up with new ideas, but we also have to recognize that it's like getting in shape physically. Like it's not going to happen in one go. Like you have to build stamina and muscle mass and endurance and tolerate pain. And, you know, we have to do that as a society in order to get to a more progressive ideal, I think. Okay. So I couldn't agree with you more, but I like to unpick, you know, what sure. it is exactly that you're saying. And I want to start with individual revolution because mm. I, I feel like that's something that's very interesting to me in a time where... You know, 
community solutions, the idea of, you know, working together to fix problems, um, counterbalance with this idea of that you need to start with yourself. So what do you mean when you say individual revolution? Well, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying it in like a Gandhi, like, like a, and sort of like a interior meditative way of like, before you can in- have world peace, we each have to be enlightened. I mean more that like, Okay, so we want a phone bank. Do you know what phone banking is? It's like where you call, you know, people in different states in swing states and help out with your, you know, candidate. So we want to do that. It's a two-hour commitment in... uh, We're not used to doing that kind of thing where you like... It's like being like a... um, What do you call it? Telesales person. You know what I mean? Like going from this being an idea that appeals to the actual inaction of the plan. That's a personal revolution. That means you're letting go of a rule or a priority or a fear and just getting over it and changing. And to me, like, I think there's a spectrum of the way people relate to life going out of control. But I've always tried to lean more to the um, playful response, Um, meaning that, like, we even said if we leave here, we don't want to run away. We want to go towards opportunity. And that's a, a way of looking at it. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I mean, these changes, are, they're, they're difficult for all of us. We've like lost people we love or industries we've lo- I mean, our whole industry, the touring business is just gone right now, you know. Um, so we've people are losing their homes. There's all this loss going on. But I still think there is a certain like, And maybe that's the existential thing of like, there's a slight shift that can happen for people. Like I listen to, um, do you like Killer Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I love one of my, one of my top five people in the world. I love him. And, um, I heard him on the Rick Rubin podcast and he was really interested. Have you listened to that one? Broken record? No. You should listen to it. Um, even though I'm about to give away like the best line in the whole thing, but he's talking (laughs) about having joy while being in the struggle. He talks about, you know, having joy and, and he says, um, he says, even in the jungle, we laugh. He said, even when we're hunting, there's time to laugh. Even when we're being hunted, there's time to laugh. And I kind of feel like that, like part of the revolution of the change of our lives is to as much as possible, try and have moments of enjoying the process because it's, it's a radical process. So something that I imagine you've been asked about a bit of late, but I think speaks to this intrinsically because you have found yourself just weirdly connected to this global worldwide pandemic because the expression of the time became, and it was universal, you know, from country to country. And I think it actually has a lot of truth at its heart, which is we're all in this together. And you literally, you know, had a song expressing that same thing that suddenly became the currency of our time through nothing that you'd done. It's not like you went to Wuhan and, you know, started a pandemic just to shift some units. But That'd be be such a dicey strategy. (laughs) (laughs) But it it intrinsically connects you with this moment of time. Like, well, at least, you know, to the external world. Do you personally feel weirdly intrinsically connected to this because of the central role that sort of song has played at the heart of what we're going through? I mean, it's funny because that that moment did happen, but it it, it already feels like a long time ago that it happened. 
because life is changing so fast and um, the stakes are so high week to week that I almost feel nostalgic for, hey, remember when we're all in this together became an anthem for a minute? It's only maybe a month ago, two months ago, but I haven't been thinking about it because there's so much, like every day you turn on the news and you're just like, what is happening? My wife woke up the other day and she said, what's happened? And I was like, nothing. Actually, there was one weird morning when nothing insane had happened, like overnight. And she was, I was like, it's weird to say nothing. <laughs> and right. she just went, whoa. Um, so every day's like that. So I, I did, at the time, I'll say um, it gave me faith that my interests or my passions, um, they're useful. You know, like it, like there's a song that brought people comfort 15 years after it came out. And at the time, I mean, the song did well at the time, but it was um, not a fashionable sentiment to express, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but it had its moment where it was needed. And that was 15 years later. And, and what it made me just more resolved to just follow what I see as being true. At that moment, again, we're circling back to this going for it. It's like it deepened the lesson of like, hey, 15 years ago when you went for it and wrote that song, it's paying off today. It's helping people today. So I'm just kind of like, it helped me How do you balance that as as an artist? Because there is obviously, and taking the audiences out at the moment, I really think adds to the, the layer of this, which is the idea that, Immediate response is part of, you know, the joy of doing it, right? You can see you're doing a show and you see the audience there singing along or enjoying the music that you're making and you get an immediate response to it. That immediate response has been taken away. But there's a bigger question in this, which I love, which is particularly as a musical artist, like sometimes it's the opposite as a comedian. If somebody rediscovers your work from 15 years ago as a comedian, often you're about to get cancelled. But as a singer... Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it turns out when I was 25, I said something that was a little problematic <laughs> through today's lens. <laughs> but as you know, a musical artist, or as you know, it, there are a whole bunch of other forms of art where your art might often reach its nexus, its peak. I was listening to Nick Drake the other day. It just came on you know, what we were listening to was some, you know, mix of songs and Nick Drake came on and, you know, it occurred to me that this person who made this music that I, you know, absolutely love and at a point in my life was completely life-changing to me was, you know, well dead before he knew how much this thing that he made would mean to me. And, mm. and you know, you've had at least a little insight into that of going, oh, this thing that I made back then, which was for then, actually was for 15 years from then. Okay, can I tell you an even weirder one, though? And this is something to do with just having a long career. I had this woman reach out to me. So about, um, how long? Around Awake is a New Sleep, maybe before. So like about 15 years ago, there were these things called podcasts that I had heard like one or two people do. (laughs) Like Paul F. Tompkins had done one, and it was this audio thing. And I was like, that's kind of cool. Like I could play some music and talk and, you know, do a little radio show type of thing. So I did six or seven episodes of it and I put it through my website because that was how it used to be. You had to host it at your website. And it didn't get that much of a reaction and I lost interest in it and I let it go. Um, That was long before podcasts became, you know, what they are now. And this girl reached out to me and she's writing a book on the history of podcasting and she runs a podcast company 
and my podcast was the first podcast she ever heard. She didn't <laughs> she didn't know what they were. And she interviewed me because she's like, you, "This your podcast." I was, and she said, "I'm sure you get sick of talking about." it. I was like, "Literally, not one person has ever asked me about it." <laughs> it's. And I, I think she thought I was being like self-deprecating by being like, oh, no one cares about what I do. I was like, no, no, that thing literally no one cared about. Um, so the point being that the longer career you have, the more opportunity there is for moments like that to occur. It's, it's not up to you what the fruits of your work are going to be, basically. It also speaks to the idea of qualitative versus quantitative measurement, though, doesn't it? It's that idea yeah, it that we measure art so often because through the prism of you know commerciality. So how many records did this album sell compared to my last record, or how many people are at the show, or you know how much money did I make from doing this specific thing? Whereas actually, they're not. You know, the amount of people who heard something isn't actually commensurate to the idea that that many people really enjoyed it or it was important to them or no, that they listened, they listened exactly. to that song and they decided to start a company that would become their entire life. Well, that's the classic thing about, you know, the Sex Pistols first gig. There was like, you know, 12 people there, but they all started bands or whatever. And, you know, it's funny. I, I It's hard to say this without it coming across as like arrogant or something. But I actually also think... I'm like a little bit ahead of my time, not in the sense of the aesthetic of my music. I would never claim that. Um, I think my music's quite traditional aesthetically. Um, it's, I, you know, I like it. I have a vibe to it. I've, but I think in terms of the conversations I'm ready to have, I'm ready to have them a little bit before the rest of society. And that's just what artists are meant to be like. Like artists are meant to be kind of like fringe thinkers that go, hey, you know, it's kind of like, like, you know, um, an aesthetic idea even, like, you know, Sonic Youth or something going like, hey, noise can also be music. Um, they were just ready to have that conversation. And I think part of what this whole thing shows me is that that is the journey of artistry. I mean, I remember you talking about the same thing back at that little gig, you know, that that bit you had about the baby chinos. Um, you, you, you don't remember that? You know, no, you, yeah, I, you do. I, yeah, vaguely remember that. Yes. Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was like it's in my mind because you, because you talked about standing in line behind a mother and a child at Starbucks, and the child um, said, "Mummy, I need a baby chino." And your instinct was to tell it, "Look, there are going to be a lot of things you need in life, <laughs> and one of them is never going to be a baby chino." <laughs> but it's interesting because I wasn't a parent yet, and that joke was like it was ahead of me. Like I remember it and I thought it was hilarious, but what you were saying was something about parenting too and about the way we've sort of come to indulge our kids and it's, you know, it's a societal <laughs> thing about, and then what effect that has on the kids who are our kids' generation who are sort of like, they've been totally pampered with no physical danger and no, and they kind of don't know how to function as adults in the world. Um, so anyway, that joke was like a little further ahead of my conceptual understanding of it. And I think that's what creativity is meant to do. It's meant to plant seeds in people's minds when they're, um, before they're ready to talk about it. And then they blossom and become flowers and then they have an experience later in life. And it, it makes sense, you know? Okay. So you, this idea of the creation of yourself as the work of art, which I think yes. is... I mean, is something I respond to, and I think that when I'm at my least, something I respond to particularly right now, which is, you know, at a time where I 
I did have the you know, rug pulled from under me. I had made the wonderful decision to get back to do a proper... I hadn't done an Australian big tour for about three or four years, like a big national tour. So I thought, 2020, that's my year. I've got three different shows. Like, you know, very much what you're talking about. You know, not just taking one show out. I had three different things that I wanted to do. I was going to do big venues with some shows, smaller venues with other shows, like an improv show. Just really getting back to, here's the things that I like to do. I don't know which of these makes sense to people, but I want to do them all. So I'm just going to do all these things and then of course you know as it turns out like the entire year gets you know because turns out comedy really terrible for you know like the real aim of my gigs is to jam as many people into a room without air conditioning and get them to express fluids from their face violently for 80 (laughs) minutes so it's not a great job for our times it turns out finally a dangerous comedian literally in a sense of super spreading diseases so i have had a lot of time to think about what it is that's really important to me. And that has come with a lot of looking back to look forward. And the thing that you expressed it better than I have expressed it to myself, and that's why I dug it so much, which is the times that I look back on that I'm least satisfied by are things where they weren't adding to the creation of what it is that I have wanted to do with my sort of life and my art and these sort of things. They have been things that have been connected to that world, but they've been external. They've been, you know, consulting jobs, you know, things where you take your true self perhaps to the job, but the job itself adds nothing necessarily to your true self. And so trying to dis- how do Wait, you what do you and consult choose? for? Like, how do you, what do you consult for? Well, like here's what I would say. Something? No, I don't mean that. I mean that in a, an, an analogous sense, I guess. In what I mean is like, I did a big commercial radio job for a couple of years, right? Okay, so it's like and a paying gig, just like a I think gig. I was yeah. very true to myself in that job, but I'm not sure that I walked away from those two years of my life and felt like I had advanced me as a person or me as an artist, Got you know? I, I don't think yeah. I gave anything away. But I think yeah. I had two years where I didn't move anything forward. I didn't concentrate yeah. on the things that were important because I was in this world doing this thing. And you're a person who picks and chooses various different things to do. So what I really wanted to talk to you about was that idea of which choices... Do you look back on any of the choices that you've made and thought, oh, well, this wasn't me being an artist. This wasn't me, you know, contributing to my true self? Yeah, I do. I mean, I look back on my biggest regrets have to do with um, like being too influenced by other people, um, whether it was artistically or business-wise or spiritually, like where I felt I wasn't fully thinking with my own mind, you know? But I also know that those are the moments that have taught me what it is to think with my own mind. Um, and I personally had to, it's almost like looking for a shortcut. Like I would try and piggyback on other people's way of thinking. So thinking it would get me to the destination I wanted to go to, but then what you kind of realize is, but you have to go to your own destination. So how is someone else's method going to get you there? It's going to get you to their destination, you know? So even if it works, like for me, say like certain, like, kind of like commercial choices I've made or sort of like to do with the pursuit of fame or something like that. I think ultimately some things worked, some didn't, but I 
don't think it was really like um, I, I wasn't on the way to my own destination. Does that make sense? So how do I choose them in the moment? I kind of now choose them in. It's so funny because it goes back to like almost like the simplest thing. Like as a kid, I kind of choose what sounds fun. Like even in this type of um, moment where my options are limited, I still look for the most fun one. Because I think fun is a, you can do a lot worse than that being your compass. So I'm very interested in, you know, where you're at right now. You talk, you've spoken already yeah. about phone banking, you know, and the idea yeah. of how important US politics, you know, this moment in US politics is like. You know, you spoke obviously about, you know, being passionate about Bernie and AOC, which might mean, certainly I have a lot of friends who would be, you know, similar to that, who live in the American system, who, you know, had their hearts broken a little when, you know, the candidate, you know, was closer to the centre than, you know, a Bernie and AOC approach at the world. But of course, you've also spoken about that idea of having to change things incrementally as well. So... Speak to me about where you see America at at the moment because I'm fascinated by this. Because, you know, as you know, yeah. I lived there on and off for nearly 10 years and, and really... And you've always been passionate about politics. Love my time there and, and yeah. you know, but was seeing a lot of warning signs, you know, when I decided to come home. And, you know, part of coming home wasn't just that I felt like there were warning signs there. What you said earlier about not just running away, but having something to run to was very important in my mind. I thought, you know what? There's some shit going on in, our, in Australia that I probably could have more prominent a say in than my tiny little voice would be heard in this. This is not my fight. I've gone out with a good friend, a couple who are friends of mine, and they're fighting about shit at dinner that I can't do anything. <laughs> this is about them. They've got to sort their own shit out. And to be honest, I shouldn't be out with these guys. There's some shit going on at home that I should be keeping an eye on. <laughs> That's how I felt. And so I felt like I could come home and I could make work back here in Australia that was probably more true to the work that I wanted to be making. And I probably could make some you know, bigger contribution to society you know, focusing on those things in Australia than being overseas. But I still have so many friends who live in the US and I have so much of the good times in my life, good memories of my life associated with that country. So I, I, it gives me no pleasure to see the pain that it's going through, but it feels, at least from the outside looking back in, that that pain is incredibly real on so many levels. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know... As someone that moves anywhere, in some ways, like when you're an immigrant, you sometimes um, are almost more passionate about a country than the people who are born there because you you moved there with some belief in what it was. They just found themselves there. <laughs> you know? So they could still get indoctrinated into some kind of patriotism. But as an immigrant, you like you have to really want to be somewhere and you have to work for it, you know. And I always felt, look, I, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Spike Lee, right? When I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. So I didn't have an, maybe even before that, I saw like TV shows like Family Ties or something. And I thought everything was perfect in America. I'm not sure. But, but from when I was, you know, sort of a very young adult, I had a sense of what was simmering under the surface here, particularly in terms of racism. 
but I think I um, I viewed there to be this other thing that was balancing it out, which was the sense that in America, there's a belief that anything's possible. And technically, if you're in a place where everyone believes anything pos- is possible, you can heal and you can move into a new era and you can forgive and you can, you know, that's in a way the only mindset you can be in to actually heal, you know? So I always had an optimism about that there would be possibility for healing for this country. And as an artist, I viewed a lot of music and seeing what was happening with music as being quite hinting of um, healing, you know, in the sense of like way less barriers between races and appreciation of art forms and black cinema and like all these incredible things that I I just saw good signs because, you know, I'm a bit of an optimist like that. But I, it's like the scales tipped the scales went the other way and I'm tr- at the moment I'm doing a lot of exploration of um, in a non-judgmental way why totalitarianism might be attractive to people and I read an interesting article the other day about how life in um, in uh, North Korea is uh, I think they use the term um, you know boringly okay and how actually you are quite if you don't disagree with the government and you're not a scapegoat you can have quite a mundane happy life in a totalitarian regime and i think that's the appeal i think when trump's yelling out law and order law and order it's a it's a dog whistle to people's sense of wanting a strong father to come in and go look these are the rules this is how it's going to be and you're going to be safe and protected by me and I think people find that very attractive. I do not find that attractive. I, I, I would have preferred to go the other way with like the mother's love of the mother going, just go out there, we'll always accept you. Find out who you are, experiment. <laughs> like I'd be like the liberal mother, <laughs> but it seems like America <laughs> wants a stern father. And um, it's, it's pretty crazy. And as far as just going back to your other question about the heartbreak of the progressive platform, I shifted mindset from that to well what have we got let's look at it and when i went in to biden's platform which anyone can do and i really encourage people to do it it's like joebiden.com because everyone gets these like pull quotes and um or they have an idea that reading someone's policies are going to be really complicated but they're not they're late it's a website you can read through the policies and they're not that technical there's not a lot of numbers and jargon it's like I believe this and I believe we need to do this kind of thing for it. You know what I mean? So like really, and what I um, experienced was that from my knowledge, this is actually the most progressive group of policies ever laid out in American politics at the presidential level. So you kind of got to go, we got to pick our battles here. I'm really grateful for that. I, I can... I back up what's in these policies for the most part. They are a step in the right direction. So that's how I I had to go through that process um, to go from just being anti-Trump to being pro-Biden-Harris. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I do know what you're saying. And obviously this is, you know, what... I mean, look, Bernie himself has, you know, come out and, you know, endorsed, you know, Biden-Harris and talked about the idea that uh you know some of those policies are in there because 
he ran, you know, because of AOC. Yeah, Biden's already said, like, I believe in the Green New Deal. Like, mm. that that was their, you know. Yeah, yeah so, th- so that <laughs> has happened. Just because it did not go, just because Biden didn't become Bernie, like, I, that's what seems to have frustrated some people. I'm like, well, if they actually wanted Bernie, they could have had Bernie. It's not, they didn't want, you know, Bernie. They wanted, you know, some, you, you got what you wanted, which is, things going further towards where they need to be. They need to be even further away. Of but, course. But you, some of the effect has been done. Some of the work and has I, been done in dragging Biden. If Biden, if there was no Bernie, Biden wouldn't be running on the policies that Biden is running on now. That's right. And you have to also look at the corollary and just go like, okay, maybe you don't think Biden's going far enough on climate change. How far is Trump going to go on climate change? Like you're talking about zero. You're talking about literally someone who doesn't believe climate change is real. So to me, it's just sort of like, I mean, the idea that you would vote third party or not, you know, not vote for Biden and Harris as a left leaning person of any degree, I I respect your right to have your opinion, but we know what the outcome of that's going to be. And I guess there are certain people that would rather see the thing crumble rather than it take incremental steps forward. But it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for any... I mean, those are like romantics. That's like... Life isn't always like that. It's like as an entertainer, I mean, how many times have we had to deal with kind of like sometimes like not ideal situations in terms of the people we're in business with or like the people who are financing things. Like it's the real world. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like the idea that it's like if you were a musician who said, I'm only going to work with morally pure people. Um, It's like you're you're not going to be in the music industry. So that's just how I feel about it. It's like, come on, let's be grownups and honor how big the threat is coming in and just band together behind this. Well, part of the problem is also that it's, it's not an individual pursuit. Like, unfortunately, in these sort of things, you're playing against an opposition. As you said, it's Trump, but it's all the things that come with Trump. You know, the power of, you know, that set of ideas and those set of, you know, journalists in power and public commentators in power and people's voices being amplified. So it's not just that side of it. And you know that they don't play by the rules. This is, like, they're proudly... I mean, I was seeing a guy tweeting today about the, you know, the Supreme Court vacancy. And, you know, somebody had, you know, tweeted, well, you said last time that, yeah, they shouldn't do it and they needed to hold off. And he goes, yeah, I said that last time because I didn't want your guy on the Supreme Court. This time I want my guy on, so I'm saying the opposite thing. The point is to win, not to play by the rules. And I think this this is part See, of that's, the problem. See, they're honest in that way. Right. Whereas the left <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're honest thinks we need way. to play by the rules as well. Well, we are, honestly, in some ways, I think we are a, a more... We have more integrity in a certain way, whereas to people on the right, their integrity is that they'll tell you the truth if they're going to fuck you over. Yeah. That's basically... (laughs) (laughs) And there is something to be said about that. Like, I can now look around this country and see where the racists are because they don't feel the need to hide it. They're just like, hi, we're the racists. And there's something to be said for that. I'm not going to deny that. That, like, it's the devil you know. There is a a quality to it. But it is also extremely cynical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, it's something you have been uh, speaking about as well as politics a bit publicly is the infection of the wellness industry with 
QAnon. Can we can we speak about that a little bit? Because I live, as you know, in the heartland of you know, Australian wellness, the uh, Northern Rivers hinterland near Byron Bay. And, you know, look, as I, as I said, when COVID first hit, Mullumbimby is the town where I go to get my groceries. And you can't get people to wear masks at the supermarket when they won't wear shoes to the supermarket. So, right. you know, it's, it's a world where there's so many good-hearted, beautiful people who, you know, have a really excellent perspective on the world. And yet the more and more that I would bump into people, people that I know, people that I love, or people that I ordinarily have, you know, fondness seeing, I would hear these ideologies creeping into the discussions they were saying simply sometimes just simply you know what do you think of this scamdemic or this plan yeah, yeah, yeah. it might just be a little bit of language like that but over the last couple of weeks even you can see how quickly that that small amount of language has ramped up into these quite overblown manifestos and a lot of it comes back to an organization or a, a, I don't know what you would call them, called QAnon. And you, so you've been speaking about this a bit. So what have you been speaking about? Why did you want to speak about it? Yeah, so um, I, you know, I have been like kind of a quote unquote spiritual seeker in my life. And I have moved through a series of worlds and ways of studying and meditating and stuff that I would now look back on and refer to as different cults whether or not I was fully invested in them or not, it was a process I went through of moving through these worlds, you know? And a lot of what I witnessed was how hard you have to work to convince yourself of something. Because I think we all basically know when things aren't possible or aren't real, but you have to, that's what gaslighting is. And people do it to themselves. They brainwash themselves. That's why I think this brainwashing thing is a bit misunderstood because it's not necessarily someone with like hypnotizing you with a pocket watch. It's something you do by immersing yourself completely psychically, intellectually, emotionally within the infrastructure of whatever the belief system is. So when people watch YouTube videos over and go, you know, on this down this rabbit hole or go into their Facebook echo chambers and just click all these links about, you know, masks are going to kill us. And, you know, it's like they brainwash themselves. Right. So what I started seeing was um, I'd been watching QAnon for a while because they, you know, they came from sort of troll culture. It was, oh, sorry. Um, it was, um, you know, kind of a joke or a game or a, you know, in this, in this sort of, you know, um, unregulated internet world message board thing. And much like Pepe the Frog or something like that, who you might know about or your listeners might know about, it was taken and turned into, it went, you know, it, people really ran with this idea. And I'm sure there's a lot of, I don't know, it's, I'm not one of those nerds who like knows all the, keeps up with every single person who's been pinned to QAnon and what is, but clearly it's a conspiracy theory that is working very hard to get its tentacles out into the world, right? And I noticed there was a few moments where for the first time I noticed it creeping into my broader circle of friends. It actually happened once where um, uh, actually my wife's stepmom sent her like this inspirational video 
and you're watching and you're like, oh, this is cool, you know, and you're watching it. And then like four minutes in, there's like a flash of Bill Gates's face. And, you know, like next thing you know, you're like, it's like full Q and at the end. I was like, and I was like, I don't even know if the people sending it are watching all the way through. <laughs> a lot of them are. But it's, you know, it's very clearly indoctrination material that hits all of these emotional cues that you need to hit to be open to something and genuine concerns to do with, like, that's the other thing. Like, all cults and all religions aim to solve an actual problem. So you're not going to have a successful cult if you're not targeting an actual need, an actual pain point in your buyer, right? So when QAnon talks about things like um, the fact that there are hidden forces behind the economy, there are, they're called corporations. And when QAnon talks about child trafficking, human trafficking is a real thing. So these are all points that if you're a sensible person, you are going to be moved by, you know, technology, all this fear, the, the isolation we're all feeling emotionally, but they kind of draw it together. And um, anyway, so people start getting that. And then another friend who'd actually, I knew had been in another cult, started sending me this like anti-mask and hydroxychlorine, you know, all these kind of whatever that's called. I didn't pronounce it right, I'm sure. Um, uh, these links. And you're realizing that some of them know they're sharing QAnon materials. Some of them don't. But it's all leading them deeper and deeper into this way of thinking. And this way of thinking is, there's a few things that really tip this for me. I was very, very moved by, and continue to be, by Black Lives Matter. As someone that, you know, like I said, I idolized Spike Lee and the racial issues that I always knew were here, I was like, this movement is unbelievable. What I'm seeing, this, the conversations we're having in our home, the conversations we're having amongst friends, we are addressing racial issues that we haven't been talking about. I was so grateful. And as soon as I saw that QAnon, their theory is that Black Lives Matter is um, an operation by the elites to distract um, the unsuspecting public from what Democrats really want to do, which is drinking infants' baby blood and, you know, chemical... I mean, this stuff is so out there. But the point is, I was like... I know what Black Lives Matter is. I know people involved in it. I know people that... Pro I, I, I know what this is. This is not a government operation. And I know it because I'm moved by it. And I feel it. And I get it. And how dare you exploit such a sensitive issue that needs to be dealt with and denigrate it and question it. And it, it's, it's deeply racist. And the other thing about the QAnon theories is... They are basically a rehash of anti-Semitic theories and um, conspiracy theories that have been around for generations. Like there was one called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. There was, you know, it was all about banking families and it, it's, it's just old fashioned. There's a reason why Shakespeare made Shylock the money lender, you know, in Merchant of Venice. Or was it Merchant? Yeah, Shylock. I think he was in that. Um, because And he's a stereotypical Jew, because Jews have been viewed with this type of anti-Semitism for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's a total, between that and the racism, and the, I, I was just like, I know what this is. And when I started seeing it move into the predominantly white, predominantly comfortable um, yoga and health and wellness community, something clicked. I was like, of course, because these people are good-hearted people 
who want to do the right thing in the world. They have good values. They want to eat natural foods. Their whole thing is like, they're romantics. They're idealists. They want to make the world a better place. I'm like, these people are the easiest mark for this cult. And it disturbed me to see a number of people I've had had acquaintances with become kind of leaders in this movement, like Mickey Willis, who made that Plandemic movie. Um, I've had another neighbor down the road who um, kind of lost his mind and said God spoke to him and the world's ending and the blacks are coming up into the hills and he's moved moving to Montana to build an arsenal of weapons. I mean, Looney Tunes behavior, you know? And I think this time people are cracking in different ways and it's so painful this time and so isolating that people will accept a complete fairy tale in order to soothe themselves and make themselves feel better. And I think that's what's happening. And this is the worst part of it, that part of the way the new age community. So all QAnon believes that Trump was basically sent by God. And Kanye believes this too. He said, this is the closest we've had to having the word of God in modern politics. Right. Um, but that also appealed, I think, to people who are like in the yoga world, the idea of messengers and also of gurus of like the mad guru who with their wisdom, they mess up your life to teach you the ultimate lesson. They say Trump is playing four dimensional chess and that he's aiming to he's joking, like when he aims to bring down and collapse all the systems so it can be rebuilt as a city of light. This is pure messianic nonsense. And there's always been false messiahs and they're not good people. And I think the naivety of these, these people in the wellness world is in a way that their shell is a little too soft and they haven't dealt with enough bad people to recognize one. And they're like in Stockholm syndrome. They're an abused people who are taking on a love of the abuser and thinking that Trump is going to lead them to peace and happiness and safety. And it's the exact opposite. And it's driving me insane. <laughs> so th I think I just lectured for 10 minutes, but I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, I get very hopped up about this. No, that's, <clears throat> but you're, but you're right because it's the connection between them and Trump that is almost the hardest jump in the conversation for me because particularly where I'm from, that wellness community is very much, you know, make your own kombucha at home and go to yoga and, you know, like have a, have a drum circle and, you know, have some ayahuasca and, you know, that'll sort you out. Everything will be fine. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we've got these communities, we have these markets, we all have roadside stalls where we, you know, sell each other fruit and veggies and, you know, we live in a community. We will help each other out. All those things are cool things. Like, I have no problem with anything that's been said so far. All that stuff is very appealing to me. So... I can understand where that gets polluted a little bit. I can understand how those people are susceptible to, you know, because also wellness has been monetized, you know, commercialized. So there is an infrastructure, a capitalistic infrastructure for delivering, you know, bad information built into, you know, the wellness industry now. So you have... It's exploitative. It's an exploitative right. industry. And so these people have shown they've been open to being exploited, that their good nature has been open to being exploited already by capitalism and by bad operators within that wellness system people who come up with theories that are clearly not true and sometimes dangerous and monetize them 
you know, in various different ways. There's been little versions of that going on in the wellness industry for a while. So I get the idea of how they could be susceptible. But the jump to Trump just feels so far away. And Okay, yeah. The, the missing link here is the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing that's... That, that's the part. That's what connects them. You're Honestly, right. though, um, it's a distrust of Big Pharma. Yeah. So Trump went in on a religious platform, right? Even though he was like the least mm. religious, least moral person there is, that he went in with evangelical Christians behind him. Now, if I were to say to you, what's the overlap between... Um, evangelical Christians and new age people, you'd have an easier time figuring that out. You're like, it's probably like they take like educating their kids really seriously and take responsibility for it. They don't want to hand that over to schooling. They want to eat well. They don't want to be... And and this vaccination issue has... It just pulled them together, man. It's like, it was the perfect storm. You know, it's been brewing for a long time. But once you think that Bill Gates wants to put a microchip in you, which is what a QAnon belief is. And that's what apparently the vaccination to COVID is going to be. It's this microchip. I don't know where that leaves this rubbish vaccine that Trump's peddling in the next few weeks. I don't know why. I, I haven't yet heard there's going to be some kind of like narrative around what that is. That's like he knows it's not going to work and it's going to make the vaccine industry collapse. There's going to be some narrative about that, right? But that is the thing that connected them. So that's interesting to me because, again, it, it's what you observed earlier, which is starting with some sort of identifiable truth and then extrapolating it. Big Pharma is not to be trusted for a whole range of reasons. So you've got your your real world truth, but then it expands out into this idea that all vaccinations are dangerous and you combine it with a human you know, instinct, which is that you don't want to see your child hurt or in pain. Now, they separate that from a bigger thought, but I... It's a, it's, a, it's a whole bunch of handy ingredients. So if we live in a world now where, you know, facts really don't matter anymore, you know, this idea if there ever was this sort of, you know, agreed set of facts or truths and, you know, we could spend hours, you know, picking that apart and whether there ever even really was that time. But particularly in this age of mass communication, immediate communication, the idea of, you know, doing your own research actually is counterproductive because there are so many places that you can find research that looks accurate. You can find isn't. anything to say whatever you right. want it to say. Do your own research is the worst. <laughs> With the, the, that is the opposite of what we should actually be telling people these days. It's just like, go to a professional who's done their own research. Do not do your own research. <laughs> That's good. The last thing in your in the world we possibly need right now is you looking into it more. Seriously. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so, That's but how funny. do we wind this back? This is, uh, we, we recognize what the problem is, but all we're seeing at the moment yeah. is a super acceleration of the problem rather than yeah. any sort of winding it back. So how do we wind back? Yeah. Well, so for me, um, for instance, with um, social media, I block and delete comments from QAnon people. It's my belief that once someone, I've been in these groups before, and it's my belief that when someone's in, they're not open to hearing anything. That's just what I believe. I, and I'm not, I, I know cult experts actually say the opposite, but that's not my experience. My experience is that someone may leave when they're ready to, and you may have planted a seed, but they're just going to be trying to convert you in the conversation. It's like 
there's not a debate that me and chef pete evans could have because it would be two people who are not open to each other's viewpoints so it's actually not an interesting conversation you know so um so the point being what i'm focused on is not getting more people sucked into it that's what I'm focused on. I view it as, I don't know how this is going to end up. I don't feel great about it. I, I Like we were talking about the boringly happy totalitarian world, I actually think um, more people might want that than want a liberal society. So I, I'm not feeling hugely optimistic in that sense. But I like to think that if it was 1941, I'd just be there going... Uh, guys not into this <laughs> i'd just like to raise my hand and go not into this and that's all i'm trying to do i now. mean pro- probably not raise your hand that's <laughs> yeah, exactly not raise my hand. Be <laughs> back then but. Yeah, yeah, exactly but you know what i'm saying <laughs> so just like i i'm literally working i'm agitating QAnon. i'm teasing them i'm um i'm challenging them i'm, I'm not being scared of them um because I want to stand in opposition to them. I don't believe what they're saying is true. I don't believe Trump is good for humanity. And the fact that you've convinced a lot of my friends or acquaintances of that is not my problem. I'm against this way of thought. I want to go on record and say that. Uh, one, one of those things really stood out to me, though. Uh, I'm, I'm not afraid of them. I'm not scared of them. So I think a lot of people are scared of them because this is clearly... You know, like, I mean, the idea, I assume you're now on some sort of list. Like, you know, there'll be a nice Ben Lee conspiracy coming out at some stage and why you're so anti-QAnon will be weaved into the fabric of, you know, the bad actor that you I are. I welcome you it. Know? I welcome it. <laughs> That's like getting a parody on SNL. You know what I mean? It's like a mark of success. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you don't worry. The fear is not there. You don't sit there and go, how how could this impact me? Am I getting myself involved? You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you've even talked about that idea of people you know, friends. Like I imagine, you know, there's at, at very least if you're not scared of the idea that they're going to publish your address or, you know, put, you, you start making up rumors about you and your life, the idea that you might lose friendships through that, you know, there's... Is there fear around it at all? I don't know. I mean, I might be foolish. Um, I just view it as like, there are some battles that you don't have a choice but to get involved in. Like, I I think about... It wasn't until QAnon infected the wellness community. Because that's the other thing. If people don't know about me, like, I've done a lot of work with ayahuasca and different meditation groups. And, you know, this is a world I'm very connected with. It wasn't until it infected that world that I thought I, it was my job to speak up. Like, I don't think I have to argue with everyone who has a different opinion than me, but these guys took the germ of a sort of open-minded community and they pointed it in their own direction that they wanted it to be in, you know? And for me, I started feeling no one was even noticing it. I was like, are you noticing that there's like a Trump presence in the yoga world. Are you are you noticing the the anti-mask, the words they're using when they don't want to wear masks? Um, and other people weren't noticing. And I was like, I guess this is the moment when you have to stand up because you, through your own weird experiences, become uniquely qualified to have 
a certain type of opinion on something and we each have those moments in life so yes that that's what it strikes me as well about this and why you feel so comfortable talking about it because it feels like a they came for they came for you know a part of the world that you valued and you still value that world and you want that world to be a better place rather than a worse place and that you also had some sort of insight into what it was like to be to be in one of those situations where you're a true believer in something so what what's the appeal of that because i don't think that i've ever maybe my industry like i'm very i do love comedy and i you know there's a lot of mythology around comedy that i certainly bought into early that like most people who've got older i've seen the you know the things that were hidden away and the problems with my industry and the things that weren't so glamorous and romantic about it but i think that you know if i've ever identified as being part of a cult it would only be you know the work that i've chosen i don't think that i've ever really dipped my toes into a cult outside you never had like a you never had a a cult like relationship with a teacher or a therapist or anything because you can there are one person cults too i don't think no never that i, I have and mm. it's weird to me because i find that idea quite appealing you know, when I hear about it, there's something about that where I'm like, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I, I've never had a mentor. Like I've chosen mm. people and picked out parts of their lives to sort of formulate, you know, some idea of mentorship. But I've never had someone necessarily that I could go to and talk to or that I respected their advice more than anything else or I fashioned mm. myself in the style of or, you know, well, I've never smart. had... What do you want to do? <laughs> I've never had a group or a place that, you know, that I signed up to... In fact, there's always just been no a small step? part of me. You never that did need 12 step? I've never, I mean, some people might recommend that I should, but <laughs> no, no ne- never, never. I don't, hmm. I can't identify in my life once where I would, even when I've been part of teams and organizations, you know, clubs and sporting organizations, you know, I've, even my, the way that I follow my football team, I'm passionate about my football team, but I'm not one of those people who, lives and dies on the results of the weekend or I don't have that connection. So I'm very fascinated by like here. I'd like you to talk about it a little so that I can Mm. understand it a little bit more as someone who has no experience. Well, it's the idea of someone helping you firstly. Okay. I'd say before there's any kind of like need for a mentor or a guru or anything like that, there's the idea that there is a destination. And we don't know that to be true, but certainly a lot of people in human history have believed there was a destination. Whether you call that um, psychological health or happiness or enlightenment or, you know, whatever it is, the Buddha, the Christ, like there have been these ideas about what our potential is. So you also may be a person that doesn't, actually believe there's a destination which is i'm more inclined to that in a way nowadays um i don't know but but for me i believe there was and if there is a destination then there has to be a path to a destination and unless you're the most confident or arrogant person in the world you have to believe others have traveled it before you it's like if you're like in your car in the middle of like Mexico with no service and you're trying to get to a town, eventually you pull over and you ask someone which way. So the entire spiritual journey and also the 
um, capitalist exploitation of that spiritual journey is built on the idea that there's a destination, there's a path, it's knowable, there's um, you can do it, and we're here to show you how. That's it. I mean, it seems simple when you say it like that. And now I'm, I'm, I'm like the whole time I was really, to be honest, I loved your answer, but I must admit to you, to be completely and utterly honest, I was still stuck in the idea, the revelation that I've never been involved in anything that is <laughs> remotely cult-like. I was still thinking about myself, which may mean that I'm subscribing to the cult of me, but um, <laughs> that would be fair on a podcast called Philosophy with Will Anderson. So um, I, I don't, I, I get the appeal and obviously I don't think that I am some sort of self-determined person. Like I, I, I just pick and choose bits and pieces of wisdom and knowledge and, you know, it's very much the philosophy of this show is I love, I love talking to people about what they think and I know that along the way I pick up bits and pieces or shape what I think about the world but I don't, I'm not looking for a set of rules. But I'd credit your parents with that. Like, mm. like for someone to grow up believing that it was okay to take little bits from, and you don't need to go all in with things, that's some pretty good parenting that must have taught you that particular lesson. Obviously, all our parents are imperfect and, you know, but there are certain lessons that you learn from having parents who don't over-emesh with you, who, like, let you have your journey, but they don't, like... You know, they respect your space, but they also give you a little guidance here and there. It's, It just sounds like you gave a very well-adjusted answer to that. Well, so I'm interested then in you as a parent. You mentioned it earlier. Right. You know, you weren't a parent when I was doing my baby Chino routine, which I'm now yeah, yeah. remembering a little more fondly than I remembered it. And I might have to <laughs> dust that one off post-pandemic. <laughs> Coming for you again, baby Chinos. <laughs> Um, but you have to have then a philosophy of what it means to be a parent. And you've touched on it a few times. You've spoken about the idea of, you know, how we raise our children and how we prepare our children for the world. But also, obviously, we're living through times at the moment. And these are going to be times that have their ramifications, not just in our lives, but much more in you, you know, in the next generation's lives. So, like, what is your parenting philosophy and how do you, you know, feel about the world that your child's going to grow up in? Well, I would say that um, my what I'm learning at this moment about parenting is that it's not an either or between confident leadership of a family and admitting you don't know. And too often, particularly dads, I think, they have to act like they know in order to feel like a leader or that they can make decisions, you know? I'm, and that's what I don't like about Trump. That's another thing, that he never admits he's wrong and never admits he doesn't know. It's like, there's no vulnerability. It's like total confidence to a, it's just not realistic. It's not human. It's, that's not what humans are like. So I've tried to seize both. I've had to. I've been forced to seize both these sides of myself of saying, like, who can say they know right now? None of us know what's going on. But within that, within the unknown, I do know how to maneuver, maneuver myself and pivot and dance a little bit. And so I'm going to help us make some decisions as a family. 
and they don't have to be done with complete confidence in my choices, but they can be done with an energy of confidence and support. That's kind of what, that's the balance that I'm finding to be, that's like the biggest lesson I'm learning in this whole thing. And what about then your responsibility to shape the world? Is it more important to you now that you are, there is a legacy or is it, does it have the same importance? Does having a kid change the world that you want to leave after you in any way? That's hard for me to say because I always wanted to have kids and I, I never considered that. I may not like whether you call it legacy or just, you know, having kids, it was always part of how I pictured life being. Mm. So my decisions were always like that. I always thought that part of um, being an environmentalist is that you're leaving the earth in a decent shape for future generations. Like it just seemed like it, it seemed like a logical thing. It's like if you're in a cooperative, you know, atmosphere, when you, take a shower at someone's house and you're a guest, you don't leave just all your towels strewn over everything. That's like being a bad guest. I sort of viewed it as like, you just tidy up after yourself. Like, can't we be a little bit more sustainable in the way we live here? So that was always for future generations. Um, so I can't really say, I don't know what I'd be like without kids, I guess. Does it change? Where are you at the moment? I guess is the question I really want to ask when it comes to, what the meaning of life is because you said you know obviously that you've looked for if there is a destination you've looked for you know a path to that destination um you know a lot of that is obviously about you know a search for meaning what is this all about you know what are we doing here what is my role here on this planet what are human beings are we an accident in the corner of the universe or is there some greater meaning to our life if i believe the science and we are just, you know, an evolutionary accident, you know, that will probably grow up and die out. Why the fuck is it this? Why can we make music and sing songs and, you know, joke with each other and create these incredible things? How can that just be an evolutionary accident? That whole idea of what is the meaning of our lives has never felt more immediate i think but you've obviously been somebody who's been exploring it for a fair while where are you at at the moment on the meaning of our lives well where i'm where i'm at at the moment is that i'm going to be controversial here as a podcast guest, but <laughs> i find it incredibly important not to talk about um i find that meaning comes from immersion within a moment within experience if, if you find yourself talking about meaning you might be out of touch with meaning at that moment you can't you can't have meaning and be thinking about meaning it's like not possible like meaning is an organic experience it's like when something feels meaningful it's meaningful there's no way to measure it <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's pretty amazing. Like, we're, like when I think about what's been meaningful in my life, it's like a moment becomes injected with meaning and I don't know why at all. It just, it, it seems to be meaningful. Um, but analyzing meaning as if it's static or intellectual or can even be grasped or discussed, it feels almost like... Um, it's it's like um it's like going out on a date like i just had a friend who went on a date with a guy and he talked about um he talked about 
what type of relationship he wants to be in way too much on the first date. And it's like there was no chance to actually form a relationship. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think we're a bit like that as people. We're like, it's early days of our understanding of things, but our best bet is actually just learning what we can about meaning by trying it. And I don't know, we're all learning about it. I, I don't just don't, like my current experience and say go into this like QAnon stuff is an experience of um, a compulsion to address this and a quickening of my blood. You know what I mean? My heart's beating. I feel brave. I feel like what I'm doing is needed. I feel humble about it. I feel like I'm, I'll collaborate with people. I'll talk about it. I don't have any answers, but I'm in, it feels meaningful. And I don't know why, but surely if I'm in touch with a sense of meaning, then that's a positive thing. Okay. So firstly, I love that answer because I think that it has a great deal of wisdom to it. And I think that often meaning is completely retrospective. You know, you don't actually often know that you are in a meaningful moment. You know, the meaning reveals itself later by, you know, uh, what has happened. But ironically, I will say that, I found that answer very meaningful and I knew at the time that it was meaningful. So in answering the question about talking about meaning and whether it can be meaningful, I did find you talking about meaning meaningful. Oh, that's good. Which I think disavows the entire point you <laughs> well, were Well, except, except that it's always <laughs> meaningful. Um, it's always meaningful to hear no in life. Right. Like I generally find like it, it's, it's a difficult experience to hear no. Like, like... And it was a very liked way I was saying, no, I, I can't answer it, basically. Even though I said it in a poetic way with some, you know, fun ideas, I basically said, I, I, I don't know and no. And I think moments where we, part of what, <laughs> I'm going all over the place, but part of what I think the problem with the wellness community and the yoga community is, is they really don't like hearing no. The feeling of, in that way, it's very entitled Um, If you look at the cultural makeup and the socioeconomic makeup of people that are in the yoga and wellness community, I heard it said best the other day, someone said, yoga is for people who are already well. That's how it is in our world. (laughs) Like, do you ever see an amputee going to a yoga class? It's all healthy people. (laughs) And it's... It's ableist in that way. It's an it's a privileged thing to take do these juice fasts and everything that you're already healthy. That's how you know about these ideas even. You're basically like you're not like begging for food on the street. You're not out like you're not living in your car. Like basically like your needs are met and you're going off on an exploration of how you can like more profoundly better yourself, which is a very privileged a very privileged thing and you realize that a lot of people in that world haven't heard meaningful no's before you know and i think in that way um i aspire in this moment to give a meaningful no you know and i think that is where when we say no it's like something magical kind of happens like psychologically to us we're forced like two people who are in disagreement 
are forced to examine like the roots of their entire identity because then you get this feeling of like merging with someone who agrees with you. You're like, oh my God, like you'll see people just like, oh my God, we're like the same person. We're like twins. We have the same star sign and we like the same smoothies. And, you know, like, and in that experience, there's like a denial of the loneliness of existence and the solitude nature of existence in a moment of battle where people disagree, there's a profound um, experience of feeling yourself as separate. And it's interesting how we started talking about we're all in this together. And for me, there's also been a, and I think for many people, I think this whole coronavirus time has been a profound realization of our, our loneliness too, and our isolation. And um I'm getting well. Yeah. I think that that's you're, you're absolutely right. Like we're all in this together, and and we've it's also been revealed that we're all you know in a sense very mm. alone. You know, you know, and it comes back to individual revolution, which we started as well. But what I want to talk yeah. about is this idea of what did you call it a gener a generous no? What did you just call the no? An intelligent no? What did you just I don't know. Like, what did say, I say the no was? Oh, a um, I don't know. What did I say? I said, uh, it was just a, a firm no. I don't know what, what phrase I used, but but I think saying... A generous, a generous no. no. I think maybe, maybe you okay. said a I'll, generous no. I'll go with no. that. I'll buy that. Whatever. Yeah. You know, whatever. What I, People can yeah, exactly. rewind. They just yeah, heard yeah. it. You know, they can rewind and remember. But what I loved about it was, I think that's the missing ingredient, which is no, it can be very productive. But what your no came with was an explanation, a sense of generosity. Like just to use the, the simple, you know, example of this podcast, you could have just said no, right? And we could have moved on to something else. But it, you knew that I wasn't really asking necessarily for the answer to that question. I was asking for your thoughts around that question. And your no gave me your thoughts around that question. Yeah. So you you protected what you wanted to protect, but you gave me something in return, which meant that our relationship in no way and the relationship of you and I on this podcast, I mean, you know, was in no way you know, halted or affected by that. There's a generosity to it. And I think that's what we're well, missing. Like right. People say no all the fucking that's time. Right. But, you know, people disagree all the fucking time. And it, it often isn't a good thing because it gets us nowhere. But if there is a disagreement with that spirit of generosity or, you know, that spirit of explanation or that spirit of trying to find, you know, here's my no, but here is the connection, you know, uh, that we have outside that no, then I think that's what's genuinely interesting and important. Yeah, and, and I think um, having firm resolve in what we will and won't tolerate. Like that's part of where it's come to for me with this QAnon thing that I will tolerate a lot of diversity in my friends' opinions and beliefs. I will not tolerate racism and I will not tolerate, um, you know, for instance, one of the things that has broken my heart about this QAnon thing is they're obsessed with child sex trafficking and they're stealing all of the media and all of people's attention from the organizations that legitimately work with human trafficking and i heard an amazing interview with um i forget what organization she was from but this woman said 
beyond the fact that 50% of what are classified as human trafficking happens within families, like parents taking the kid without, um, you know, in a divorce or something, like, and crossing a state border, that's called human trafficking. Um, to, away from that, anything, there is there are awful things that happen. And what this woman was saying was that, like, the number one thing we can do if we want to stop human trafficking is end homelessness. And I was, she was like, why aren't they focused on that if they want to end human trafficking? Yet people think by sharing Facebook things about the places like, you know, Will Ferrell and Chrissy Teigen at the center of some universe, it's like, I don't know what they're hoping to achieve, but it's nothing to do with the actual, there is a problem. And it needs to be dealt with and they don't realize the harm they're doing, you know? And so I think us, I think saying no to that kind of insanity because it's hurting people um, is important. And I've, you know, I've been really involved with encouraging friends of mine that have good standing in the sort of yoga community and wellness community. Um, And I would include you in that, Will. Like, I think like, I know you've, you know, you're, on Twitter and everything, but I think there's a, there's a formality. Um, there's a, there's a generous no achieved with a formal condemnation of certain types of behavior. And I invite you, if you are inspired to, to craft that in a tweet or an Instagram post or something and just say, just, you know, no, not good, not going along with this. Um, and I think you give permission to people that don't have the courage to say no to say, oh, well, Will said it, and Ben said it, and Sean Korn, this yoga teacher in New York, said it, and Marianne Williamson said it, so there's enough people saying no, so I guess that's a valid, you know, and this stage of development where we need that aspirational quality of seeing others stand up to something, and I think this is something that I, I really feel we can make a difference in just by shutting it down and saying, I don't agree with this. It's a, yeah, it's an incredibly important message. And I think it's the, if there's ever going to be a time for us to, you know, draw a line in the sand of what we think is important in our society, that line in the sand has to be drawn right now. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's been fascinating to chat to you. I know, yeah, we've been banging on for ages. So I really didn't um, want to finish up. So but, fun. I love uh, talking to you, man. I, so I feel I you're mean, like a, um, I just feel a great connection to like we, you know, I don't know, we chat every couple of years or send some context or other, but like <laughs> I, um, but I always admire what you're doing. And I always feel like a, um, you know, a type of like resonance between our creativity and our aspirations and stuff. So it's, I'm so happy to be able to connect. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know what it is either, but I, I certainly, you know, feel a, a closeness to you that isn't actually demonstrable in, you know, the fact that we've spent that much time together. So Gifts uh, are good. Gifts are good if you want to express Yeah, okay. Them, you know? <laughs> well, when you're back in Australia, the postage okay. is a little bit less costly. We can, uh, we, we can work that out. Um, hey, man, I, I've loved this, but I've got a couple of quick questions before we go. So yeah. um, I've added a few questions since okay. uh, since you last did the show. So you okay. you. you wouldn't have covered off some of these. Oh, so this I'd is like, like a format thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I won't yeah. do them all, but I'm just okay. going to do a couple of them if you cool. don't mind. Uh, well, the first one is this. You can have any skill in the world. You don't have to do 10,000 hours to develop it. This is magic wand scenario. Um, you just can have any skill, do anything in the entire world. What is it that you would love to be able to do super well? I mean, there's still a part of me that just would like to fly. Mm. 
like a kid, you know. Like I know that's not a technical thing you can do, but uh, you you gave me some no, no, some it bandwidth. Can. I would it can. actually love to be able to fly. Yeah. So you're not the only person who said that. And really? I'd like to okay. Ask, I, I'd like to ask now a follow up question, yes, which please. is, you can fly. Yes. You know, as of tomorrow, it turns out that you can fly. Yeah. How does it change your life? Uh, it's going to be so hard to find time to fly with my family <laughs> responsibilities. I'm going to be like, I'll be like, oh, I only would be like, wait, you can't fly this morning. <laughs> you got to, like, I'll be like, wait, can I get in like five minutes in the afternoon? Let me try. And she'll be like, of course, just do it. It's your thing, you know? And she'll be like, but when do I get time to fly? <laughs> so it would be a whole new thing to negotiate within a family structure. <laughs> Because the, the capacity that you would suddenly have to fly wouldn't overwhelm your pre-existing commitments, right? This exactly. Is... I mean, iCal is iCal. It has a yeah. list of things i got to do every day, you know? <laughs> also, you're bringing like extra... Would you keep it a secret? I'm very interested in... I mean, I know I'm asking very practical questions about a thing that can't happen, but I'm interested in these insights, which is suddenly you can fly. You discover tomorrow you can fly. You decide to just keep it as part of your schedule. You tell your family, but nobody else at this stage... Um, do you try to keep it secret? Are you secretly flying? It's so funny because I like to think I would secretly fly, but mm. there's nothing in my history that indicates I'm the kind of person <laughs> that would fly and not talk about it. <laughs> so just being realistic. You know? <laughs> would you care that the fact that you could fly something that no one else in the world could do would immediately surpass all your previous accomplishments in life. Because that's one of the things that you have to consider is now that you're not, uh, you know, you're not be the ben first Lee thing the on the Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Ben Lee, the man who could fly also wrote, we're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually okay with that because I have had all these different chapters in my life. Yeah. Um, and at each one I've been even musically like I'm not someone that had one mm. moment like there's people that love my really early stuff and people that love breathing tornadoes and people that you know so I've had to accept that um you're de like with we're all, like with we're all in this together like it's a bit out of your hands um I've had to accept that that is out of my hands and if that were to be my what I'd be known for then so be it would you feel the responsibility to use your gift for good or would you be happy to just use it to you know pop down the shops no i definitely would after a minute once i got used yeah. to it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't right away you can't jump into good deeds right away you gotta be like just have some experience like master it you know what i mean it's like there's gotta be a curve of like learning the skills it wouldn't just be like you suddenly know the whole bit you got to get like on the road training uh is there something genuinely in your life that, you know, is something that you've always wanted to try that you, you know, have either had never had the opportunity or never had the courage to try? I've never tried pure DMT, mm. uh, but not because I haven't had the courage, just no one's ever offered it to me. So I'd probably do that if someone offered it to me. I would, I would definitely recommend that if someone. Yeah, I know. I've, got, I've had it in ayahuasca, obviously, but yeah. I've never had the actual DMT experience. So. Yeah. Well... Uh, yeah, you you would like that. I probably right, know cool. someone who could offer that to you. All right, cool. <laughs> I'll hit you up. 
<laughs> um, I have a time machine. I don't have a time machine. I need to say for legal reasons, but I have a time machine. I'm offering everyone in the world one round trip. So you don't have to go back and do something that is beyond your capabilities. You know, you don't have to go back and kill baby Hitler or anything like that. This is purely, you get to take your individual joyride on a time machine. You can go back in time. You can go into the future. We've added that new element of late so uh the time machine is now capable of going to the future it is a round trip um because i need the machine back to offer it to the next person so uh i still thought you were offering me dmt at the beginning of this whole bit <laughs> i was like you were like i've got i was like oh cool he's telling me he's telling me he has the dmt and the pipe and everything and then and then you kept going with that i was like oh i guess we're in a different section now <laughs> well actually yeah i can take you back to the uh bridgetown <laughs> comedy festival in portland <laughs> to, to a specific <laughs> incident that i think you'd really enjoy but anyway that's a story uh, yeah. for another time so no I, I have a time machine where would you like to go um I would actually like to go pre-industrialization. I'm not that fussed about where, but a lot of where we find ourselves now is about trying to understand the role technology plays in our lives and what's healthy and what isn't. And some of that is genuine discernment and concern for like where we're headed. But I think some of it has to do with an idealization of an experience from a time before technology, as if it's like... um, everything was once pure, like the Garden of Eden, you know? And I think I would like to experience, is that sort of dichotomy imagined? Or was there a different sense of time and... uh, Because, you know, I've heard stories about, like, um, the invention of the train radically changed the way people dealt with clocks. Because suddenly, if I was coming to Byron Bay, you'd know when to expect me. Whereas before it'd be like, see you in a few months, you know? And so, so technology has totally changed our sense of time. So I'm curious about the, the experience of existing. And I'd like to talk to people before technology and um, as far as we understand it in the modern era and really make my own mind up about that from experience. That's a cool answer. Thank you so much for this. What can we... Uh, plug other than um, obviously you know that people should not believe the terrible <laughs> lies being spread by QAnon yeah. and you know don't do your own research that's my new motto yeah, <laughs> trust exactly. the people whose job it I is to do research that. don't do your own research I love that um, <laughs> I, um, I put out a record Radnor and Lee my, we put out our second record Golden State during right when this all started so it just sort of disappeared but it's a pretty cool record justin stanley produced it you know aussie guy he's a great great musician um and um i'm working on a new record and it's really cool it's like i was gonna do it this isn't really anything to plug but i was gonna do it with a live band before everything happened and um and then i just was like gave up the plan altogether and then at a certain point i was like I guess I got to reinvent it. And I just started sending files to all these great musicians like Money Mark, you know, who used to play in Beastie Boys and Beck's band and um, Shamir and um, Christian Lee Hudson and uh, just um, Sally Seltman and different people and sending files back and forth and just um, building it that way. And it's, I think it's some of the strongest stuff I've ever done. I'm really, really happy about it. So hopefully that'll come out, you know, early in the new year. All right. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for doing this. Right on, man. Be well and hopefully see you in Australia. 